It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically, nothing costs $2 anymore. You could, like, get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap, and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join, or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Jono, we're back. I, I guess we are. Uh, we often start off with a clip, right? The crisis that we are facing today is not complicated. It has everything to do that we have a government that ignores the needs of working people, ignores the needs of minorities, ignores the needs of women, yet works overtime for wealthy campaign contributors and the 1%. That voice you just heard was not that of Doug Ford, the Ontario MPP for Etobicoke North, the guy our podcast usually clips audio from but two-time U.S. presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. Anyway, what he said there, and that clip happened to be from a 2019 speech, but, you know, that's his, what he said is his, is his general thing. That wasn't too far off the kind of stuff we heard Doug Ford say about the Kathleen Wynne liberal government on the campaign trail back in 2018. Well, people of Ontario are struggling to pay bills and put food on the table. Kathleen Wynne's friends are getting richer on the backs of the hardworking taxpayers. But in this episode, we're not here to talk about Doug Ford too much or about Kathleen Wynne. Which is a bold departure for a show named after one of them. We're going to zero in on the Ontario NDP, once again the official opposition at Queen's Park. The party's readying for a leadership race to replace Andrea Horvath. We're going to try to understand what democratic socialism the political ideology that Bernie Sanders famously embodies and that the NDP is named for means in an Ontario context, and whether the new Democratic Party will choose a leader who truly embraces the left. But the NDP are social Democrats, right? Which are different from Democratic Socialists, maybe, I think. 
Uh, joining us to explain whether that's the case will be Luke Savage, who's uniquely qualified to do so. Once an NDP staffer at Queen's Park, he's now a staff writer for Jacobin and is kind of the expert when it comes to considering how the Canadian left does and doesn't align within the larger progressive movements that we see elsewhere in the English language world. We also have a few thoughts we need to share about Doug Ford's cabinet picks and the prospect of the provincial government turning its eye to recruiting an NFL team to Toronto. Yeah, I mean, it was only a matter of time before Ford got around to that. I mean, you know, football, the cause of and solution to all of his brother's problems, perhaps (laughs) they will serve a similar role for him. I'm Allison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today. And I should stop being shocked by Doug Ford, but the fact he only put seven women in his cabinet did surprise me. We'll get to that. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Canada Land, and I once got to see Kathleen Wynne introduce Bernie Sanders at a speech only about a year after she described his trade policies as dangerous. And this is Wag the Doug, once again, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. When we last left you, dear listeners, it was our election night episode. Doug Ford had been named premier once again. The NDP maintained official opposition status. The liberals were limping into continued irrelevancy, and both of those parties' leaders resigned. Since then, a few more things have happened in Ontario politics and within the Doug Ford extended universe. As the Toronto Star put it in a shamelessly blog to style headline, Doug Ford is selling his house. Here's where he's moving to. Although maybe BlogTO would have put it like, you'll never guess which premier is moving. Um, Remarkably, it's a condo in downtown. No, no. He's just going back to the Ford family compound in central Etobicoke where he and his siblings grew up. Uh, That's the one where they used to have Ford Fest before such events got too large to be accommodated in even the sort of extravagant backyard that's full of uh, animal statuary. Uh, I imagine the property has been largely unused or like vacantish since his mom passed away a couple years ago, although I think Randy still lives in at least part of it. And I'm not sure if Michael Ford still does. That's Michael Ford, the Minister of Citizenship and Multiculturalism, by the way. My theory was when I heard that he was moving that it was like some sort of agreement between him and his wife, Carla, that like if he won the election, they would move to some place where they wouldn't have protesters outside their house because that has happened on his current street. But then it found out he was moving to his mom's house and it was like, well, that's not going to do it. So uh, he told the he told the Toronto Sun or his camp told the Toronto Sun it was because he's had so many happy memories there. That's undoubtedly true. Mm -hmm. Also, it's like a cul-de-sac. It's probably easier for the police to block off the street as needed. Mm -hmm. So uh, as you mentioned, uh, Jonathan, the premier's nephew, Michael Ford, who I didn't know until uh, he was uh, added to cabinet. That's not actually his last name. He changed it. Mm -hmm. Yep, Sturpy. Um, So he is part of a slate of 30 cabinet ministers, including Doug Ford, uh, and that only has seven women and seven people of color in it. And there's some overlap between those two demographics. 
I'm not someone who's going to die on the hill of gender parity in cabinet. I think it's a good idea, but I also think it's annoying how liberal governments in Canada mostly use it as an exercise in optics. They just want like a round of applause for it uh, and then do things like Jody Wilson-Raybould. That said, Ford made his cabinet bigger than it was before the election and put fewer women in it. So it's now less than a quarter female. I think it's like 23.5 percent. And it used to be 35 percent before the election. That's actually a really big difference. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there is, however, unprecedented representation by, by Fords who now make up a solid 7 percent of cabinet, which I believe is more than, than more than black people do. Another thing worth mentioning is that nearly every PC MPP is either a member of cabinet or a parliamentary assistant. Soon after the cabinet news, Ford appointed his parliamentary assistants, of which there are 43 up from 25 the last term. That means that more than a dozen ministers now have two parliamentary assistants, which is largely a ceremonial job as it is. Yeah, like they, they don't generally do anything, right? They're more like deputy spokespeople and ribbon-cutting alternates. Is that... Accurate? Uh, Yeah, that's pretty accurate. They might also field questions and question period on behalf of the ministers. So that's a duty. They're not really writing the policies, though, that's for sure. So between cabinet members and parliamentary assistants, that's a lucky 88% of the caucus. That means nearly all of the progressive conservative MPPs get a raise. Uh, In Ontario, regular MPPs are paid $116,500 per year. That salary has been frozen since 2009, which I think is pretty uh, easy to argue that that's why Doug Ford is, uh, you know, giving out this position so Mm -hmm. much. Because uh, once you're a parliamentary assistant, you get about $133,000 a year. Cabinet ministers get about $166,000. Ford himself gets 202000 So either cynically Ford wants to give a raise to all his uh, MPPs who got elected, or maybe Stephen Lecce really does need two assistants, and Ontario's embarking on the best reign of education policy we've ever seen. And I mean, you also, the MPPs also get paid more for other le- legislative leadership jobs like WIP or government caucus chair. And so two are expected to be elected to speaker roles next month, leaving just six who are, as of right now, truly backbenchers, although at least some of them are likely to become committee chairs. Uh, Goldie Kamari, Donna Skelly, Laurie Scott, Ernie Hardiman, Aris Babikian, and Lisa McLeod. Give them a round of applause. Poor Aris Babikian. The first four names on that list are MPPs who'd either been parliamentary assistants or cabinet ministers in the past. Lori Scott and Ernie Hardiman were both ejected from cabinet for allegedly being anti-lockdown during the spring of 2021. Uh, it's my understanding that Lisa McLeod, who is a prominent Ottawa area MPP, she ran against Patrick Brown for the PC leadership in 2015 although she eventually withdrew her bid. But she was in cabinet for all four years of the Ford first term, but pretty widely disliked, I believe, among her cabinet colleagues. She also had some snafus, let's say, early in her term as tourism and sport minister. Do you remember when she accosted Eugene Melnick, the owner of the Ottawa Senators, who has since passed away, um, at a Rolling Stones concert in Barrie in 2019? 
I didn't remember who it was she accosted, but I remember the accosting. Yeah. So according to Melnick at the time, McLeod stormed over to him at this like big outdoor concert and yelled at him about the state of the hockey team. <laughs> she said, do you know who I am? I'm your minister and you're a fucking loser. And she was like the minister of sport. <laughs> she for, was the minister. Or had part of her portfolio, right? Exactly. Yeah. I'm your minister and you're a fucking loser. Love it. Uh, Melnick complained to Doug Ford in a letter that I think was like on like Ottawa senators like letterhead. Um, And after that, McLeod, who she was known for years for being pretty fiery on Twitter, like not being the type of uh, politician that just kind of, you know, follows the line, let's say. Uh, But after that, she started she started being a whole lot quieter. And three years later, I still can't believe that Doug Ford wasn't the first person in his own cabinet to tell a member of the public to fuck off. (laughs) So after McLeod learned last month that she lost her post as tourism minister and wasn't getting another cabinet job, she announced she was taking a temporary leave of absence to work on her health. So who knows when we're going to hear from her again. I truly don't know what Aris Babikian did, though. It's kind of funny that there's just one guy in the room who's never, ever gotten a promotion. Um, yeah, like you said, I'm sure they'll throw them on a bunch of committees or something. Yeah, so the PCs haven't still haven't passed a budget for this year. Uh, are going to recall the legislature on August 8th to pick a speaker, deliver a throne speech, and retable the spring budget. It's you know expected to be mostly the same as the fiscal document they tabled in in April, but you know who who knows? It's Doug Ford. Think of all the people he's shaken hands with between then and now who could have just arbitrarily shifted his priorities to the sheer force of you know talking to him for a few minutes. <laughs> he has said the budget will increase uh, ODSP by five percent, um, something he promised on the campaign trail. The legislature is supposed to sit for five weeks and then likely take a short break before reconvening for the fall session. The NDP has also named an interim leader, Peter Tabins. He's the uh, MPP for Toronto Danforth. He's been around Queen's Park for a while. And City Hall before that. All right. But there are a few unknowns about the session, the main one being who will be the Ontario Liberal Party interim leader. The party has a nine-member caucus to choose from. Uh, I, and I think other Queen's Park watchers kind of assumed it would be John Fraser. He's the guy who was the interim leader before Stephen Del Duca was uh, elected. Mm-hmm. And he also held all of the liberals' press conferences during the pandemic because Del Duca didn't have a seat and therefore wasn't allowed in the legislature's press theater under COVID rules. But Fraser recently said he's considering running for the permanent leadership, and if he plans to do that, he won't take the interim job. So TikTok liberals, you've only got two and a half weeks to get a captain. Speaking of which, well, no, actually not, not related at all, but still interesting, Allison got her hands on a public opinion survey conducted late last month by campaign research Nick Kuvalis's firm. The questions in her surveys tend to hint at and reflect the government's near-term priorities a lot more than their actual you know, public statements do. They really do. For example, I remember a poll that campaign research circulated in December that I also got my hands on. It was mostly about the appetite for lockdowns and school closures amid the winter Omicron surge. But it also really randomly included a question about whether the province should allow oil system technicians as well as so boring. But this is like how odd it was, how much it stood out in the survey. It was, should the province allow oil heat system technicians as well as class A and class B gas fitters work in Ontario after earning a Red Seal qualification in another province? 
So that's all like mixed in between, you know, questions like, Mm -hmm. do you think schools should shut down? And Mm -hmm. like, how do you feel about uh, limits on capacities in grocery stores or whatever? What would you how would you answer that question? I I, I think I'd, I'd pick a don't know. Well, believe it or not, Jono, by the end of February, Doug Ford was promising to pass legislation to make all Red Seal credentials from other provinces valid in Ontario. So uh, I guess lots of people didn't pick. I don't know. They were like, hell yeah, gas fitters. Yeah. Class A and Class B, baby. <laughs> I, feel I feel bad. I don't know what what that means. Yeah. Anyway, um, in this recent poll, there you know, there's some questions about, like, how do you feel about Toronto having some World Cup games? How do you feel about the city of Toronto or how do you feel about the province spending, you know, a few hundred million to host these World Cup games? And it's like, well, then it goes <laughs> afterwards, it right, you know, it asks... There have been arguments made. Hmm, some nice weasel words. I don't think that would, I don't think that would that language would pass muster in Wikipedia. There have been some arguments made that the city of Toronto should have their own NFL football team. Do you support or oppose the city of Toronto making a bid to have their own national football team? I wasn't aware that was a. Uh, I mean, it is technically a power that a province could have, I guess, is, you know, this city must have a football team. Because <laughs> um, it's phrase, City of Toronto, capital C, city. Um, and then for Toronto to have its own NFL football team, uh, Ontario taxpayers would have to invest hundreds of millions of dollars, up to $1 billion with a literal capital B, to be able to build a stadium and qualify to host an NFL team. How much do you support or oppose the Ontario government making a bid to get an NFL football team in Toronto? You know, it'd be nice if they asked the city of Toronto. Uh, how it felt, but I also feel like Tory would probably be totally fucking on board with this because this is the type of, this is the closest thing to city building he understands. I'm generally aware that there's powerful people and I suppose sports fans in Toronto who want an NFL team here. It's been like floated. There was something where like bu- the Buffalo team was playing here sometimes. Um, you know, while I'm incredibly opposed to taxpayers being forced to pay $1 billion for a stadium. On an intellectual level, I can understand that Toronto is a big city with lots of football fans and would probably be a fine host for another sports team. But yeah, like you said, is that something a provincial government can even sway or is a billion dollars enough of a sway for that? It sounds like the exact sort of priority that Doug Ford would gladly spend money on. The other thing the campaign research poll asks about is building a new Toronto Convention Center, which it notes would be on top of an existing park. Uh, So if that happens or either of those things happen, you heard it here first, listeners. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In choosing a new leader for the first time since 2009, the Ontario NDP potentially has a chance to reset itself. Since 2015 or so, there's been a resurgent left in the United States, thanks to Bernie Sanders, AOC, and perhaps just a generation of young people realizing that barely regulated capitalism causes more problems than it solves. In the UK, there is even Jeremy Corbyn, whose leadership of the opposition Labour Party and potential to become prime minister, genuinely rattled the country's elites. Uh, In Canada, we have 
I don't know. I mean, Jagmeet Singh seems like a nice guy. He makes good TikToks. And in Ontario, Andrea Horvath has seemed to come from a different generation of political leader entirely, but I can't quite put my finger on why. Meanwhile, there's some drama in the ONDP as an upstart leftist faction coalescing around a Twitter account in Slack called New Democrat is really riling up the party establishment by advocating for the removal of top staffers. Um, so to talk to us about all of this generally, uh, we're joined by Luke Savage, staff writer at Jacobin, co-host of the Michael Noss podcast, uh, and author of The Dead Center, Reflections on Liberalism and Democracy After the End of History. How are you doing after the end of history, Luke? I'm doing all right. It's nice to be back in a, a studio. feels very uh, pre-pandemic, so thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. No, we're very, very, very happy to have you. We wanted to have you on the show because I would hazard a guess you're the most engaged contemporary thinker on U.S. politics who's also worked for the Ontario NDP. <laughs> <laughs> How does it feel to hold that distinction? Yeah, I feel like there's not a lot of competition there, but it still feels pretty good. So under Andrea Horvath, the Ontario NDP pushed the government on a lot of important issues. They, you know, they advocated for housing, for ending homelessness, for improving long-term care, uh, for hiking ODSP rates, for increasing the minimum wage. But they really failed to make, in my opinion, these things very sexy or really create a clear narrative of what an NDP-led government would look like. You know, to your mind, what, what could the Ontario NDP be doing differently? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? One of the key dilemmas uh, for any left party today is that, uh, you know, you're in a sense operating against the current, you know. Uh, 40 or 50 years ago, maybe say, let's say 50 years ago, um, there was a certain direction of travel, let's say, in the decades after the war towards a broadly defined kind of a social democratic way of seeing the world, you know, uh, there were there were certain things that it was just very normal for the state to do that made it easier for a party like the NDP to advocate its agenda. For the last 30 or 40 years, things have really been moving in the exact opposite direction away from all of these those things. And so I think it becomes uh, much more challenging uh, to advocate even traditional social democratic policy, let alone anything uh, further to the left. And I think uh, really the other big thing uh, that certainly played out in this election with, I guess you, got, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but the lowest voter turnout ever, is that right? Pretty damn I low. I believe so. Yeah. Let, let's just say uh, extremely low and uh, demoralizingly low voter turnout. Um, so I think, uh, you know, putting aside the question of policy agenda and things like that, really the key strategic imperative for me is uh, figuring out how to turn out constituencies of people who have stopped, uh, who've stopped voting. Um, I mean, I think, you know, if you if you're wearing a kind of traditional political strategist hat, you know, there's very much, uh, you know, all the incentives are there for you to try to work with the electorate um, that you have. Mm -hmm. um, the electorate, you know, is kind of a, a fixed thing. Um, and, you know, the, the inadequacy of that as a strategy is especially apparent when half the population isn't voting and when a lot of, you know, in the case of the NDP, really core demographics are no longer uh, turning out. Um, so, you know, young people in particular, who you mentioned off the top, Allison, for me, that's really uh, 
the main strategic question, is how do you get people who've stopped voting, uh, particularly key NDP demographics, to turn out again? And, you know, young people, uh, and when we say young people, I mean the term, you know, I'm a young person, I'm 33, the term is a little bit, uh, is a little bit silly. People under 40, let's say. I think they do belong to, uh, you know, people in those demographics do belong to a uniquely radical uh, generation, a generation that I think is more primed um, than others to be receptive to, you know, a left populist message. It's often, I think, believed it's just sort of taken as a given that younger people are always more left wing. And, you know, then they move to the right when they get older. You know, what's that? probably erroneous Winston Churchill quote that's famous, right? You know, if you're not a liberal when you're 20, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative when you're 50, you have no brain, something like that. I think Churchill, like most Churchill quotes, probably didn't say that. But um, <laughs> but uh, I think that captures the conventional wisdom about, you know, age and, and ideology. And it's really not, it's really not the case. Um, you know, both Reagan and Thatcher, for example, had a lot of support uh, from younger voters. I actually got mm. the statistics here. You know, Reagan uh, basically tied Carter among voters between the ages of 18 and 29. Um, and he won people between the ages of 30 and uh, 44. Thatcher won the youth vote in her first two elections. And by 1983, uh, which was her, uh, her second election, uh, she got more support from people 35 to 44 than 65 and older. So huh. it's really just not the case that younger people are, uh, you know, always primed to vote for left parties. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, generational politics is a very contingent thing. You know, people's uh, view of the world, uh, their ideology is shaped by, you know, the circumstances around them. And so people under 40 today basically only known uh, an economic system that, you know, is not benefiting them, mm -hmm. um, you know, is one of, you know, particularly if you're of a certain age of downward mobility, of thwarted ambition, of, you know, a constantly uh, fluctuating and precarious job market, uh, you know, et cetera. So I'd argue young people today, um, for all of those reasons and more, are, you know, uniquely primed to be receptive to, you know, a left populist message. And then, you know, the key question becomes, well, how do you, how do you, what is that message and, and how do you get, uh, you know, younger people especially, but also other people to turn out uh, who've stopped turning out? I mean, I think a big part of elections that do have big turnouts are A, change elections, but B, also ones with like exciting new leaders like Justin Trudeau in 2015 or, or Barack Obama in 2008. So, I mean, for, you know, just on the basis of that, the Ontario NDP could right now, you know, pick a very bombastic, young, exciting leader and perhaps like, t you know, create a, a populism uh, on the left in, in Ontario. Or they could pick, uh, you know, Marie Stiles, the MPP for Davenport, who's a perfectly fine woman yeah, and, and, nice. and just, you know, keep keep kind of coasting on their sort of incrementalist um type of, of left-wing um, policies that they've had under Andrea Horvath. Like, you know, a lot of what they did while they were the official opposition was like if Doug Ford said uh, a business that had to close for COVID lockdowns would get $10,000, the NDP would say, well, actually, they should get $20,000. And that's a lot of that. That's the type of um, politics that they, they kind of did along the way. And I guess it's how do you get some vision? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a difficult question. And, and, you know, I think to some extent, the answer is sort of an abstract one. I mean, there's no getting around the fact that things like 
narrative are important in politics and being able to weave you know your policy agenda uh, into a into a bigger story about you know where you want to take things. I would say uh, in the second half of Andrew Horvath's leadership, um, and just kind of uh, in the last you know six or seven years in in the NDP generally federally as well, there has been a shift back towards a more traditional social democratic platform. Um, I think there's been a market improvement in a lot of areas. There's been a willingness to you know, campaign on expanding social programs, you know, ideally universal ones. Sometimes there's some uh, means testing thrown in, which uh, I think should be done away with. But I think we, you know, we've yet to really see anyone who's been able to kind of weave all of that into, uh, you know, a bigger story that people really find compelling, um, which, of course, is is a challenge for the NDP anyway, federally and, and in Ontario, where, you know, it's not now, but historically, you know, it's a third party uh, competing in an electoral system that is, uh, you know, really, really bad uh, if you're a third party and, uh, you know, uniquely challenging. So really anybody, whatever their uh, politics or whatever their mm-hmm. policy agenda is going to have a very challenging time. You know, it's yeah. uh, it's very difficult. There's no silver bullet here. I mean, it's often seen to me that the Ontario NDP and to a lesser extent, the federal NDP has really struggled to bridge a per- at least a perceived gap between two core constituencies, one being working class people in industrial centers like Hamilton and Windsor, and I guess what you would ca- could characterize as urban progressives, who are mostly also working class, but somehow also the elite. Um, so how, how have left-wing parties navigated this elsewhere? I think that is in many ways uh, the big debate, and it you know reflects uh, you know broader uh, demographic challenge on the left, which is that, um, you know, as I guess as you were kind of uh, gesturing at, Jonathan, you know, the left uh, is made up of, you know, what are, uh, you know, it's it's historic, it's traditional constituencies, but then, you know, also a different kind of uh, working class constituency that's much more urban. And so, you know, there's, there's a cultural, uh, there's a cultural divide there. And, you know, on the right, um, as again, I think you were alluding to, you know, the, the uh, you know, urban working class and, you know, the urban middle class are, you know, often kind of dismissed for cultural reasons as, you know, well, these people aren't, uh, these people aren't working class, you know, because they're particular cultural signifiers that, you know, are attached to them or whatever, you know, and that's obviously not the case. Um, like in the States, it seems like, I, I don't, I mean, this is just, I haven't followed it as closely, but it's the impression there's, there's finally this fusing of the labor movement and I don't know youth movement sounds so paternalistic but like that and the labor movement seem to like I mean it's taken a even there it's taken a while but it seems like that's actually starting to become one thing I mean at Chris Smalls the Amazon organizer is on the cover of New York magazine this week yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the fact is that uh, whether people, you know, live in like a metropolitan setting like Toronto uh, or they live in, I don't know, Sudbury or Windsor or somewhere like that, in many cases, uh, you know, the policy agenda that uh, they need is uh, is very similar. So, uh, you know, likely uh, they would benefit from more social programs. Likely, uh, you know, they, uh, they could use a higher wage. Uh, likely, uh, they need a union that they can belong to. Uh, so I think there are a lot of, you know, very obvious things to bridge that divide insofar as it uh, exists. I think uh, the divide can also be exaggerated to some extent. And I think people should also be mm-hmm. very, 
you know, careful about, uh, you know, caricaturing uh, working class people who maybe don't live in somewhere like Toronto. I think there's sometimes just a knee jerk assumption people make that, uh, well, everybody outside of, you know, Toronto and Ottawa is, you know, very socially conservative or something like that. And I don't think that's a a safe assumption uh, at all. Mm -hmm. So that's something to be careful about as well. The thing I was thinking about, and, and when you listen to someone like Bernie Sanders or or AOC and the and the the um, policies that they push, um, you know, lots of times it can be things like uh, Medicare for all, or um, you know, uh, paying teachers appropriate salaries, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, and and of course the labor stuff as well. But I mean, more I guess to the the first two points, do you find that? Canada's, you know, relatively decent social safety net makes it harder for the left to gain traction here because, you know, some of the big issues um, and, you know, some of the most crucial issues to people's lives like healthcare, you know, that's already kind of off the table as something that um, a, a ND, Ontario NDP later could try to fight for. Yeah, I guess I really have uh, two reactions to that. One is that, you know, I'm not an accelerationist, but I do think that uh, in the United States, I mean, there's just no denying uh, all kinds of things, basic pieces of infrastructure. I mean, not even just uh, the lack of uh, public health care, but I mean, really the most basic infrastructure in many places is is broken. And so, you know, I think there is... Uh, you know, a mood of desperation, understandably, that comes out of that. And so perhaps that primes people a little more towards, uh, you know, radical solutions, mm-hmm. although, you know, only to a certain extent, because, uh, you know, Joe Biden became president, um, <laughs> not uh, mm-hmm. not the socialist senator from uh, from Vermont. In the Canadian context, so, I mean, I actually think there's a sort of latent cultural uh, self-perception, if you want, um, in Canada that's pretty unhelpful. I mean, this is uh, this is maybe a bit of a digression, but you know, it's something that's uh, always interested me and which I've been critical of. I mean, I think there is this wider feeling throughout Canada that we kind of live in this uh, you know uh, multiracial, multicultural Switzerland with a Scandinavian welfare state attached to it, and it's just not true. You know, it comes out of um, this you know very Canadian uh, reflex to always compare ourselves to the United States. Um, so I guess a part of, uh, you know, the task of any uh, left politician needs to be actually drawing attention um, to all the ways in which, you know, we actually are like the United States or are becoming more like the United States. I mean, there mm-hmm. is plenty of, uh, you know, inequality here. There's plenty of poverty. There's plenty of racial injustice. Um, the fact that we have universal health care, uh, the fact that we have, you know, multiculturalism as kind of, you know, an official uh, state policy um, doesn't doesn't ally to any of those things, I don't think. This is something I've been curious about. Like, so pretty much since the beginning, the NDP has defined themselves as social Democrats. In the U.S. right now, progressives, including the leftmost flank of the Democratic Party, define themselves as Democratic Socialists. Is this like a Judean people's front, people's front of Judea situation, or are there meaningful differences between those? It's definitely not that, um, but it is an extremely, I mean, those are extremely fluid categories. Okay. And I think the answer would depend on, uh, you know, what co- in what country are you asking the question in, uh, in what decade? I mean, uh, Tony Blair identified as a social Democrat, but oh. so did Rosa Luxemburg and Vladimir Lenin, you know, at various points. I mean, I think generally speaking, there might be exceptions to this, but generally speaking in, you know, uh, North America or Canada in 2022, 
somebody who identifies as a democratic socialist as opposed to a social social democrat is probably placing themselves to the left of um, the other category. So to get more specific about the actual uh, state of, of the Ontario NDP, um, you know, because we're a Doug Ford podcast, so I'm, I am proud that we've had our first mention of Lenin on the show, but... I'm going to have to think about this. But yeah, I really be. think it's the <laughs> yeah. first, Jonathan. <laughs> um, I'm wondering, are there any either sitting NDP MPPs or... Um, outsiders, you know, in from the party, but like in Ontario, people in Ontario who you'd think would be a strong, cool future leader for the party. Well, I feel like I don't have a great sense of what uh, the field is going to be because even though a lot of names have uh, have emerged, you know, it hasn't been a debate. No, uh, no one's released an agenda or anything like that. So, you know, um, I you guess I'll say they have till December to sign up, and the yeah. race, the vote will be in March. So it doesn't have to be any anyone who might plausibly become leader. Idea, like ideally. Yeah, hypothetical. <laughs> hypothetically. <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, I think there have been there's been an influx in the last few years of, uh, you know, activist left uh, types. I mean, in the federal party of people like Leah Gazan and uh, Matthew Green. I mean, the Ontario NDP has uh, Joel Harden. I mean, I understand that he's ruled himself out mm-hmm. of the leadership, which uh, you know I was disappointed to hear. I mean, I think among other things, you know, I was talking off the top about um, about you know the drop in turnout. I mean, you know, Joel Harden may not be running, but I I, I sincerely hope people are looking at what happened in Ottawa Centre because uh, as the voter turnout plummeted across the province, uh, I believe Joel Harden got more votes uh, this time than he did in 2018, more raw Hmm. votes, so not just a higher percentage. And I could be wrong about this, but I think he may have actually got um, the highest raw vote uh, total in the province, although someone would have to check that for me. I look forward to checking that. You know, an interesting thing about Joel Harden is he was an MPP for four years, and I didn't view him as an outsider of the party, really, um, at all. Like, he didn't really stick out to me until um, there was kind of murmurings before the, like, during the campaign that he was, like, done with Horvath, and he was the only person, I believe only MPP or NDP member or candidate that before Horvath announced that she was going to resign that night, he like told her you got to do it like before. So it's interesting to me that like because there's such there's so so little to be working with in the lead up to this uh, race so far that he has already, you know, why be that? Why do that? And then decide to not run. I think it's possible that, uh, you know, there are a number of uh, left candidates who are considering running and, you know, they're all uh, privately conferencing about, you know, uh, who is it going to be? That's one possible explanation. Uh, But I don't I don't uh, I don't really know. I certainly hope somebody runs a campaign, you know, along those lines, you know, very kind of uh, very much trying to expand the membership um, and, you know, run on a policy agenda that maybe won't be popular in the, I don't know, the Globe and Mail business section uh, or, you know, the the National Post, but uh, will inspire people and, uh, you know, get lots of people to uh, join the Ontario NDP and join it in a sustained way, you know, not just sign up um, for a leadership race, but, you know, become uh, become active members, you know, Become active members and, you know, become engaged and involved because uh, that's really what is uh, is going to be required over the next few years. So where do you think the party will go next? Like, I guess there's it could keep I mean, it seems like it could keep doing what it's doing indefinitely. 
or it could take some risks, although it's not clear what the, like, what, what do you think is likely to happen? I honestly have uh, no idea what's going to happen, and I, I try to avoid making these kinds of predictions because I find that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm asked yeah. questions like this, my instinct is, you know, if, if you ask me that question, I'm going to tell you that my preferred outcome is the more likely one, mm. um, you know, and uh, that may not actually be true. So uh, I have no idea what's going to happen. We'll have a better sense, I guess, when, uh, you know, the leadership debates start happening and that sort of thing. Uh, but I certainly hope that whoever it is takes very seriously uh, you know, the, the uh, importance of, you know, expanding beyond just the uh, electorate uh, that exists and figuring out how to mobilize constituencies outside of that. Uh, it's something, incidentally, that I think the right is starting to do, the Conservative Party is starting to do with Pierre Polyevra. Um, and I think that's uh, that's really worrying. Um, you know, Pierre Polyevra is doing all kinds of stuff that looks really weird um, if you're not, you know, a member of the Conservative Party, if you don't sort of binge watch crypto videos online all day or whatever. Um, but I think what he's trying to do, I mean, my sense of it is that he is trying to uh, pursue a strategy that really breaks from what, um, you know, the... The, the reigning Tory strategy has been under people like Sheer and O'Toole, where, you know, the, the Tories have this straight jacket where they have to compete for, you know, the same swing voters in a small number of suburban ridings. I don't think Polly ever wants to do that. He's pursuing what's rhetorically at least a kind of populist right strategy. Um, you know, he's a thoroughly establishment figure, but rhetorically he's pursuing this, you know, populist strategy from the right, which looks to me like it's really aimed at uh, creating new voters and bringing new voters into the conservative coalition so that, you know, they're not just stuck in the same pattern we've seen in the last two federal elections where they can win the popular vote, but because their vote is so inefficient, um, you know, they, they have dozens of seats fewer than the liberals. He's trying to break from that strategy. And, um, you know, he's taking, he's taking risks of a certain kind, uh, you know, to do that. And uh, I think as it were, for good, not evil, um, that's what needs to happen from the left as well. Yeah, I mean, that's very much been Doug Ford's strategy. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't think he could explain what cryptocurrency is. Um, I, I, not that I could explain what cryptocurrency <laughs> is exactly. Um, but, I mean, that's definitely what succeeded for him and for, his, you know, certainly for Rob Ford very effectively, even though for him, he didn't think of it as a strategy that was, I guess, Nick Kuvalis who first had the idea of like, hey, there's an untapped potential here that he's connecting to. So maybe, maybe what, I guess the question is, like, what is it the NDP would have to do that they're not doing now in order to reach an electorate they're not currently reaching? Well, I mean, in terms of the policy agenda, um, there's a number of just very obvious uh, things that I'd like to see. Um, and perhaps this is uh, only partly answering your question, but um, I mean, I think you know, a, a, a full-throated uh, commitment to free tuition is just a give me. I can't really figure out why that hasn't been part of the, uh, you know, federal or the provincial platforms um, in, in recent elections. Student debt forgiveness as well in a non-means-tested way. Um, there are good strategic reasons for doing that. Uh, you know, for, for they're, they're quite obvious. You know, younger people are more likely to be students. They're likely to have a lot of debt, um, et cetera. But there are good, you know, sound ideological reasons, sound social democratic reasons for that kind of thing as well. I think uh, more full-throated defense of benefits like ODSP. I know the party had to be pushed by people to improve its ODSP uh, policy in the last election. I'd like to see a, a really coherent plan to uh, tax wealth and high incomes. I mean, I think that's part and parcel of any 
you know, left uh, policy agenda. It also helps answer the question, you know, the perennial question, which is the how are you going to pay for it uh, question. Um, in- I think that, sorry, just to, to, to jump off that, like I think that Andrea Forbath's NDP's taxing wealth platform was like quite timid. And when you come off as timid, I think you lose the plot, right? It has to be something that you're saying, we're really going to do this and take it seriously, or else you might as well not say it at all. Because if you're just slightly increasing taxes on only people that earn $200,000, it's like, well, you know, I don't even know those people anyways. <laughs> like, whatever. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I mean, uh, I don't know about Ontario specifically, but all of the polling I've seen for years has shown that there is a, you know, a firm majority in favor of, um, you know, taxing not only higher incomes, but taxing wealth as well. And uh, to the point you just made, Allison, I mean, I think uh, f- from from my memory in 2018, when, um, you know, the Ontario NDP did introduce a tax plan that was going to, you know, tax those of higher incomes uh, a bit, which was, you know, a break from uh, 2014 and 2011. This sort of rhetorical frame for that, as I recall, was still things like, you know, and we're going to ask the rich to pay just a little more, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, I agree with what you just said. There is a kind of losing the plot that happens with that. I mean, it shouldn't it shouldn't be we're politely asking them. It should be we're demanding it of them. You know, they're not going to pay a little more. They're going to pay a lot more. And that needs to be connected to, you know, the, a, a broader agenda. You know, the message needs to be every dollar we're not taxing from a pandemic billionaire is, you know, an extra minute that you're spending, you know, waiting on your commute in traffic or, uh, you know, waiting for the streetcar or whatever it is. You know, there's a there's a much wider story to be told. And I think, you know, uh, yeah, taxation uh, is particularly resonant uh, with people as as a as a left policy issue, because uh, people don't like inequality. You know, (laughs) there's not uh, there's not a popular constituency for that. There's an elite constituency for it, but there's not a popular constituency for it. And so there's various ways you can, uh, you know, come at that uh, as a left party. But, um, you know, taxes are, I think, one of the most obvious ones, taxes and redistribution. Luke Savage for Ontario NDP leader. You heard it here first. He'll be announcing <laughs> in uh, <laughs> December. He's raising. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Thanks for coming in and talking about this. But God, we could talk for so long about this. I, it's so fascinating. Thanks for having me, guys. And that was Mike the Doug, a podcast about Vladimir Lenin. Although I, it occurs to me I could say the name of like any 20th century Russian leader now and it'll probably be the first time we've mentioned him on this podcast. Um, Luke Savage's book, The Dead Center, will be released in September. It's available for pre-order now. We're back on our monthly podcast schedule. The Ontario Legislature will reconvene on August 8th for five weeks and we will have a new episode for you right around that time in mid-August. I'm Jonathan Goldsby. You can find me on Twitter at Goldsby. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Queen's Park Today. Our producer has been Kevin Sexton. This is once again his last episode as producer. Uh, we, we thank him so much. He was the founding producer, and then he left for a bit, and then he was, now he's back, and now he's going away again, and maybe perhaps he'll be back again. Yeah, um, he'll be back. Come on, Kevin. <laughs> and our <laughs> managing editor is Karen Oudsorn. Uh, and our theme music is by Nathan Burley. Our podcast is listener supported. Go to wagthedug.com to help us keep this podcast going. <laughs>